Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Ship It and Sip It. I hope you had a lovely week. We have one big piece of news from Parallect this week, and that is that our accelerator is open for this summer. We are accepting submissions for two founders who would like to enter our second batch of the accelerator program, have their own product team with us, and go to market with their new app or web page or web platform or SaaS solution. So uh, those applications will be open until May 15th. So head to accelerator.parallect.com and check it out, find out all the info about that. But I'm excited to have Alexander Cote here with us from, she's the growth marketing manager at Winter and she also has her own newsletter called The Content Odyssey. Alexandra, how are you today? Thank you. I am fine. I mean, you know, as good as it can get given the world situation. But anyway, thank you for having me. Right. Well, I'm really glad to uh, talk to you again. The first time we chatted was after you posted on LinkedIn. I'm not sure exactly if I remember how I started following you, but I saw you posted last winter and you said, hey, any marketers that want to meet up and just chat? Uh, hit me up and let's discuss what you're working on, what's working, what's not. And I'm really curious, uh, why did you start that process and what did you sort of learn from those conversations? So initially I started just like looking for networking opportunities that were already out there and I couldn't really find anything that would cater to my needs essentially. So, for instance, there are solutions like Lunch Club out there, but really, if you join, you'll find that sometimes people just don't show up for those meetings. So I really wanted to have these like one-on-one conversations with other marketers. So ultimately, I ended up turning on just to my network. Uh, that's what worked best for me. LinkedIn, Twitter, some Slack groups I was in. And really, the goal was to discuss some of these, you know, tips and strategies that otherwise you wouldn't share online because if it's a one-on-one meeting as opposed to you know just like a podcast or anything that's a bit more public sometimes you feel hesitant to share certain ideas that work for you or certain secrets so really that was the goal with these you know networking uh chats i had and i'm still having them if anyone wants to join just send me a dm on linkedin um really just kind of discussing these like big secrets that otherwise wouldn't be public. All right. Well, that's very interesting. And can can you share like uh, a few nuggets that you learned from people along the way? Yeah. So generally, I tend to ask people about just areas that I, you know, haven't focused that much in the past. So for instance, I would ask about just not so traditional marketing opportunities like now that everything's kind of digital a lot of companies have just forgotten about traditional marketing you know billboards and all that so for instance i was talking to this uh demand gen leader he was kind of going over some not so traditional i mean not so common but really it's traditional marketing if you think of it um just using banner ads like billboards you know different hacks they use for conferences so for instance with one of the companies they worked um at one you know they didn't have like a huge budget to get a boot at a conference so what they did is essentially they gave a t-shirt like a brightly colored t-shirt 
to uh, you know anyone who would want to wear it at the conference and in return they would go up to one of them and give them like it was like 1k or more like dollars essentially as an incentive to wear it and uh, for the results what happened ultimately is they received quite a few phone calls because you know they saw this company everywhere even if they didn't have a booth they weren't sponsoring the event and uh this is kind of on the traditional side of marketing but there's definitely fun things people are doing even just like on the SEO side for instance something uh i was discussing with this company that um basically they had their customer support pages ranking for various uh, keywords so to kind of boost these they used faq schema so you know when you have like frequently asked questions that you add either at the bottom of a page, like an article or whatever. And on top of that, you can go and add a FAQ schema. And what this does is in the SERP, you will get some extra uh, real estate space because below the meta description, so to say, you'll have those extra questions in there as well if Google picks them up ultimately. So it's things like this essentially, you know, very hands-on tactics that otherwise you know if you don't discuss them with someone you would not know about them or you just you might not be confident with their efficiency super cool yeah it sounds like a, a great way to find out a few extra tips and tricks and it feels like uh, a way for you to discover some new ways to differentiate which is a hot topic with with winter um and with all, all marketing right now, it seems to be the goal is to how do we differentiate ourselves from other companies, from other products, all of these things. And I want to talk a, a little bit about all of these different ways to do this. But looking at your experience, you seem to have done it all when it comes to digital marketing. You say you've met with people to find out things that, that maybe you didn't have much experience in. But looking through your LinkedIn profile, you've done social media, you've done SEO and content, you have your own newsletter, you've obviously probably done other newsletters for companies, um, paid outreach, link building. A lot of a vast amount of experience that you've already had, um, and I'm curious, which of these do you enjoy the most? Not necessarily which ones bring the highest value for the company, but which do you actually like more? Yeah, I mean, in terms of value, it ultimately just depends on the company. But in my case, I mostly enjoy, you know, to be fair, I like doing a bit of everything, but I do specifically like the people part of things so for instance if i'm working on some partnerships i just enjoy the whole process of managing the entire partnership and just like networking it, it again it ties back into the networking idea and really kind of expanding your reach and um you know if i'm working on content like i'm you know doing right now it's still about reaching out to subject matter experts having those discussions with them to, you know, just find new ideas, innovative stuff we can discuss just to kind of stand out a bit more. Again, it ties into the differentiation strategy you mentioned. And really, I find that, you know, whenever I'm working on something from ads to SEO, whatever, just talking to people, 
really helps you find kind of those strategies that would make your brand stand out, essentially. Yeah, and I totally agree. Um, the people are, are the best part of the whole thing. And um, I feel like that, that gets lost, at least once, once marketing gets to a certain scale, it becomes more data-driven, you know? It's about um, just pumping the number of followers, the engagement rate, et cetera, et cetera. And it feels like it's hard to hold on to that people-first mentality. Maybe you have some tips for that. Like, how do you how do you manage those relationships and keep them sort of um, valuable at such a high number? Yeah, I mean, it really depends kind of what your strategy is. But if it's, for example, partnerships, you know, I would just kind of start with again building these relationships with people in your industry. It can be other founders, it can be other marketers, depending on what your role is. And then when it's you know. You don't have to ask them for anything when you're doing these, you know, networking uh, events, so to say. You don't have to necessarily offer them anything as well, but it just makes it easier for you when it's time to get that partnership, essentially, to start a discussion. So, for instance, in my case, I'm actually uh, discussing a partnership opportunity with one of these people I talked to previously, and it's it's just super easy because you know, you know, what their role is, what they're working on, what their product is, who their audience is. So things just flow, you know, smoothly, essentially. Great. And coming back to uh, winter real quick, I would say that it continues to be a very good example of B2B marketing. So I'm curious what lessons you might have for other founders who are in the B2B space that you could share from the from the winter experience so i'll tell you what we're not doing anything that's like super unique essentially we're just kind of adapting certain tactics to our audience and seeing what works continuing to iterate on that so for instance i was talking to this other marketer a couple of weeks ago and they were running a podcast show and really the goal with the podcast you know like your podcast as well was to invite people so companies professionals at certain companies who were part of their icp with the ultimate goal of you know keeping them engaged maintaining that relationship with them so that ultimately they would turn into their clients because this was a marketing agency now in our case i think you can use winter as a good example for let's say if you're launching a event strategy we have every other month the winter games that's working very very well for us because on one hand if you if you're creating kind of this event that targets a topic that your competitors haven't yet tackled, just the event itself can help you position yourself as a leader in the field. Plus, we are also inviting as speakers, again, our ICP, so whoever is part of our target market, in our case, that's, you know, marketers, product marketing managers. Uh, you can diversify these people a bit, uh, also, again, it really depends on what your goal is, but with whatever event you set, make sure you have a goal for it. So, for instance, something else I'm organizing these days is kind of, again, kind of like a networking opportunity for product marketing managers. It's called like the winter mastermind sessions. We're still debating the name, but essentially it's multiple product marketing managers 
jumping in on a call and discussing kind of what challenges they have, uh, you know, again, what's working for them, kind of secret tips like that. And the goal there is really to just offer back, kind of give back to people uh, something that's of value to them. And in this case, it's that information that they need to do their job. Um, and uh, if you just kind of need to use winter as a example of, you know, B2B marketing uh, strategy, that could work for you as well. We are also pretty good at kind of prioritizing what channels to focus on, uh, especially with early stage startups. It's super tough to prioritize what you want to focus on because, you know, I like to think that in the past, founders had this, their main issue essentially was the fact that they didn't know how to get leads. Today, on the other hand, they're aware of the channels they have available so that they know that they need to do content, maybe ads, maybe partnerships, maybe, you know, anything else. However, they don't know how to prioritize all this. So what happens is that they start you know, doing a bit of everything, but really they're not investing any effort into one or two or three core channels. In our case at Winter, we are pretty strong on just like ruthless prioritizing as much as possible. So we have, you know, our content efforts that we're focusing on events and some other stuff. Um, but essentially it's, it's all about it's all about really understanding what your target audience wants. And especially if you are like beyond your first year in business, you might already know what type of messaging, what type of campaigns your target audience responds to. So you can continue to just iterate on those. For sure. And I look forward to those uh, mastermind events. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to sit in on some and at least learn something from the people that you guys bring together, because it seems like uh, the community that, that Winter has around it and that Pep has around him and you have around you is very uh, experienced and definitely leading the way in digital marketing. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on there, you were talking about the different channels. And one other thing that I've noticed in marketing as I've gotten more into it in the last couple of years is there seems to be a lot of like channel tribalism. Um, you know, newsletter writers and newsletter marketers uh, constantly talk about how great newsletters are and how you own these email addresses on your list and it's the best way to get to your audience. Podcasters say that podcasting is the best content producing engine. Bloggers and SEO focused people are, you know, SEO is the long term win for your company. Um, it, do you agree? Is there a sort of tribalism there? I mean, you seem like a person who, who, who sees the value in all of those. Uh, so how can a new founder sort of figure out what works for their startup? So the reason they're actually talking, kind of praising one channel is because mostly they want to, you know, become known as the go-to expert on podcasts, on SEO, on whatever. So that's why you'll see people like, even in my case, I talk a lot about content and growth marketing, but yes, I do promote this idea of really kind of testing multiple channels as well, because in my case, you know, I'll tell you honestly, 
any channel can work for you. So any tactic, anything, the newsletter, the podcast, the blog, whatever, as long as you can tie it to your target audience's pain points so that you use that channel to solve the challenges they have. And as long as, you know, you stick to using that channel so that you ultimately reach the ROI that you want. So for instance, if you have a newsletter, there's just a lot of things to consider because these days a newsletter is not just, you know, that email you get in your inbox. For instance, in my case, I have a couple of newsletter subscribers that unsubscribe from my newsletter, but they're keeping up with it on LinkedIn because they republish it there. So they just prefer a different way of consuming that content. So with newsletters, you first have to think about, you know, whether your uh, target market really likes receiving that type of content, if they would have it on email, if they would rather read something like a newsletter on LinkedIn. There's also these newsletters kind of via Twitter these days, just a lot of different ways of packaging them. And then another thing, I just another idea I promote a lot is making sure that newsletter is actually unique. And trust me, this is still possible, but the first tendency is to just go and, you know, drop in your latest posts from the blog, maybe some product updates, whatever, or just like curating content, but everyone else is doing the same thing. So you really need to find, you know, that niche, that small challenge that your target audience has, but other newsletters aren't tackling. So for instance, with my newsletter, um, it's again, one of the problems I'm also discussing during my networking calls. And that is the fact that content marketers and growth marketers these days still don't have like a go-to source to really look at and be like, you know, what do I do? Do I use a subdomain or a subdirectory for my blog? Do I uh, structure my homepage a certain way? So really with the newsletter that I have, I look at particular issues like these and I analyze kind of what other companies are doing. And I turn that into essentially a case study that you can't find elsewhere, but you can trust that it provides, you know, original information, correct information that you can then apply to your own growth strategy. Yeah, right on. And I'm one of those people who prefers to read it in LinkedIn as well, uh, whenever you post it. I, I just don't spend a lot of time in my email inbox. I'm signed up to a lot of newsletters and I'm sorry to all their creators because usually they just get marked as read a couple times a week and I forget about it. But I did look at uh, Substack just released a, a new app, uh, mobile app for newsletters and uh, I'm going to try and use that to read newsletters and actually read them instead of uh, getting them through my email. We'll see what happens though. Um, one question I did have from that, or one thing I would like to add to that in terms of channel selection is it's, um, especially if it's like a very early days, the founder is doing a lot of the marketing or you just have, you know, one, one marketer on your team working with you. It's really important to choose a medium that you actually like creating it um, because, you know, uh, a founder that hates being on video isn't going to have a great uh, YouTube 
strategy. And the same goes with, you know, founders who just don't want to sit down and ever write content. Well, that's going to be hard for them to start posting on LinkedIn three, four, five times a week and writing long-form blog posts. So it has to be a combination, in my opinion, of what they enjoy doing and what fits with their audience. So for uh, tech or product-focused founders, I want to sort of break down this next section according to um, what the founder already has. Um, So when they're starting their startup, uh, what should they do when they start planning their go-to-market strategy? And let's start with the most ideal situation. They have a deep industry experience and a very engaged audience somewhere on social. Could be Twitter, could be LinkedIn, could be an email newsletter or a blog. Um, what should they start with in that case? This is the ideal case scenario. This is the situation we had at Winter as well. We have a you know a founder who is well-known in the industry. Of course, there's people who don't know about him yet. So we're, that's where kind of, you know, the challenge uh, arises essentially because even if you have the biggest network that you can imagine, there's always you know room for improvement and for just entering new industries, just reaching out to new people. So at that point, really is you need to start asking yourself like who is your target audience, and really when it comes to this question. A lot of founders kind of go with whatever their their ideal persona is. So, if you let's say you're a designer who's who launched a startup recently, a product again for designers, and then you imagine that this product is going to help the lives of UX and UI designers all over the world. Whatever point is, in reality, you might have certain different let's say segments of customers that would be interested in your product. So that's when you need to start asking yourself, who is the decision maker when it comes to purchasing your product? Who is sitting through a demo? Um, Who is the ultimate user of your product? So for instance, with a project management tool, the, the final user is, it can be a manager, it can be, you know, just a regular team member. Sometimes it's like an individual contributor, like a freelancer or a consultant. And each person really needs, you know, different messaging, different features. They essentially respond to different types of benefits, different types of incentives. And really beyond your users, if you want to continue just scaling your company, you need to also ask yourself who has the the biggest potential to become your brand's promoter. I'll give you an example. Um, Notion, Notion's like the go-to example for this. So, you know, I mean, everyone kind of knows their story, but essentially they grew organically via their community, but the community was mostly people who were interested in personal development, like productivity stuff, Anyone who was into journaling before and just wanted to move their lives essentially into Notion, because that's kind of the value proposition Notion used at at the time. Moving your life into this like document, online journal, whatever you want to call it. However, in their case, their target market isn't necessarily, you know, people interested in productivity. Their actual ICP is you know, any team who needs 
uh, documents, um, anything really for managing product, marketing, software development even, just anything that goes on internally with their company. So in reality, that's where the money is with these you know, startups all the way up to large scale organizations. So what's happening is that if you go to their homepage, all their messaging is targeted towards these teams, essentially. They only have like a brief mention in one page for the personal plan, when in reality, their biggest promoters are, you know, people like you, like me, who besides a job, we are also interested in, you know, staying productive, organizing our, not just work, but day-to-day -day life. So I see a lot of founders who sometimes have this ideal of what their target customer base could look like, when in reality, they're missing out on, you know, potential segments that could have way more of an impact at actually promoting that brand. Because ultimately, there's no single tool out there that relies strictly on your own like sales team and marketing team's powers. Essentially, you will always rely on your users and referrals and all that. For sure. Uh, I'm curious that founders sort of discover those new segments. Is that part of um, sort of user interviews? Is, is where, where, where can they find out that there is this other group of people that will really benefit from their product? I mean, in the, the, the most ideal case scenario, you're going to start just noticing them. For instance, there's this email marketing tool. It's called Flowdesk, F-L-O-Desk. And it's essentially just like another email marketing tool. However, they target smaller businesses, like consultants, small studios. And what they did is essentially they positioned themselves as a MailChimp competitor. However, they use those customer interviews you mentioned to tap into the problems that MailChimp users had and make, you know, those challenges, not a challenge anymore through the product they put out there. So essentially what happened ultimately is all of these users started creating videos about the tool and just talking about them in public. Videos, you know, YouTube, uh, it can be just like podcast mentions, it can be blog posts, it can be just like social uh, chatter essentially. Um, so if the buzz is big enough in one of these segments that you might not be considering yet, you will start just noticing it naturally. And, you know, this is super obvious if probably any kind of SaaS tool has this distinction between individual users and then there's teams, for instance, who are using that tool. And usually you want to look at your individual users to see kind of you know, what industries they're in, what their main profile is, because they could be course creators, they could be, uh, you know, just consultants, they can be maybe also working in-house for a company, but then doing something on the side. So really kind of really looking at what their industry is, uh, how they use the tool, that's also important. Again, it depends on your tool, but 
sometimes your users come up with use cases that you did not think of prior to even launching your product. And uh, then you realize that it's actually a good use case and you start getting a lot of more users kind of doing the same thing. And if this scales in time, you'll start noticing that you've got a solid segment of users that can, uh, you know, switch your marketing around. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's go down to the less ideal founder. They've got deep industry experience, but a very small or just a personal social media audience. What does their go-to-market strategy look like for their new product? And how is it different from the ideal one? So to be super honest, what happens in most cases when you know, you've know you got this industry experience and maybe you've worked at some big companies in the past, in reality what happens is startups essentially just start raising money and just kind of scaling your company super fast from there. However, you know, that's not super realistic for everyone, or maybe you just want, you don't want to raise money, you want to bootstrap it or whatever. So in this case, I mean, I an example I like is, I don't know if you're familiar with Tailwind, it's like a CSS framework, something like that. Um, essentially, it, you know, think of it like a product, even though it's more of a programming language. It essentially, you know, the founder has the expertise you mentioned in the space, but he didn't have the exact, you know, solid audience to begin with. So what happens is there's a couple of approaches you can take, but really the biggest thing is to understand where your target audience is. So for Tailwind, again, this is the development industry. Twitter works very well for anything that's open source developer tooling. So it's clearly like a good bet to start with. So essentially he just kind of started, you know, growing his network. Uh, it does take time and, you know, there is a lot of founders that build in public or they kind of just rely on other founders that take this similar approach to continue it can be a lot of things. It can be just like networking with them and exchanging ideas. It can be turning them into your own users and then scaling from there. But the goal is you can, I mean, the main point is you can actually start creating your own network community, so to say. It does depend on your industry because in, again, in this developer, tooling, open source space, whatever you want to call it, what I usually recommend is focusing a lot on community, like well beyond uh, before you start doing any marketing essentially, because you know, that community part. So uh, engaging on Twitter, having events, posting on YouTube, things like that essentially will help you just, you know, scale and make use of that expertise that you want. But Beyond that, it's just about, you know, again, ruthless prioritization, like I mentioned before, kind of deciding, again, what channels would work best for your target market. And uh, really, if you want to start raising money, you can definitely do that. And then, uh, you know, hire some more people, maybe uh, 
again, depending on the profile of your company, because if you're in this developer tooling space, you won't want to hire a marketer right away, but instead you will look into getting a developer advocate or just somebody like in charge of maintaining developer relations. Super. All right. And the last one, the least ideal of our hypothetical founders, they have very little industry experience, no social presence, and they just have a really great idea. And if they could just build it, then it will be turned into an amazing startup. Uh, where should they start? I mean, I guess I'm turning a lot to, again, who your ICP is and really finding maybe that one channel that's not that cluttered yet, you know, with your competitors or whatever, and trying to take advantage of it as long as your audience is, you know, spending time on those channels. But essentially, it's it's really, again, a matter of prioritizing what you're capable of doing at this point and how your, your what resources you have to scale at an early stage is I'll tell you what, like in marketing, it's, it's either, you know, building like a community and spreading the word uh, about your product early on, or you need a huge budget essentially to start being present everywhere. So, I personally believe that you can actually promote a product and there's a lot of examples out there of, you know, companies that grew um, just through their their users, essentially. So a good example is Veed.io. It's like an editor, essentially, for social media videos and you get like the transcripts and whatever. Um, in their case, they just could not raise money at the beginning. So ultimately, they just gave up and started, you know, bootstrapping. And they basically did that through kind of their own efforts, like social media stuff, um, and simply, you know, partnerships with YouTubers, things that scale essentially, and things that are like super, super realistic and within reach. And you know, anything that's like obviously going to work for you, because you know, if you have one of these, anything, any video editing tool or whatever, obviously being in, you know, present on YouTube and having partnerships with other content creators is a go-to tactic. Right. And I feel like, I guess that's a point where the founder needs to sort of build a lot of trust with the audience sort of along the way, because they, if they present themselves as experts without the relevant background experience, then people will see through that eventually. But if they present their idea and say, hey, I'm building this in public or, or however they want to share their journey, and they sort of share as they learn, as they go along, the audience that they build will be, I guess, more trustful of them because they see that this person is actually passionate about it and they're also sharing what they don't know and what they're learning along the way. So it could could definitely work out. Yeah, and, and, and whether you have experience in an industry or not, what you can do is just, again, networking, talking a lot to other founders in maybe a similar industry or not, and just kind of making use of those learnings. Plus, this helps you establish those uh, relationships and partnerships early on. 
And ultimately, you can turn this into a nice account-based marketing play, into some really cool partnerships, events, whatever you want to. So it all ties together ultimately. All right. So uh, sticking with the go-to-market strategy, and uh, you, you've referenced this as well with with um, where Winter is at with testing new approaches. I'm curious about what what are the positive or negative indicators that you look for uh, as as an early stage startup when you're when you're experimenting with go-to-market campaigns, different marketing strategies. Um, what what kind of feedback are you looking for to know that is this working or should we try something different? And what kind of timeline do you look at those experiments in? Personally, I only like looking beyond the vanity metrics. So in my case, that's like recurring revenue and any you know sales ultimately. The risk with you know being at an early stage and being excited about a channel is that you will start paying attention to social media engagement and things like that. But it depends because there's a difference between just getting likes and getting mentions. And basically, because, you know, a like doesn't really tell anything about you as a brand. However, if you have a mention or more, you know that you are, you know, building your mental availability and people start thinking of you, especially when it comes to certain challenges you help tackle. So in my case, when it comes to experiments, honestly, I just use like a simple ICE, impact, confidence and ease prioritization method so that I can kind of organize which experiments I'm going to focus on next. Now, in terms of timelines, uh, sometimes you want to, you know, you want things to move quicker. So you can, if it's like a smaller experiment, it can take as little as a month. But if you want to start seeing solid results, especially in terms of revenue, you definitely need to think at, let's say, three months plus. Again, it depends on really kind of what the experiment, so to say, is. So kind of what channel you're testing. If you're just in your first year uh, after launch, again, it's a matter of channels because content is going to take you probably two years if you've just launched today, for instance, uh, to actually start seeing results from it. However, some partnerships, with anything it can be other SaaS brands it can be influencers like content creators whatever that's going to bring you some of these like short-term results like maybe some instant you know new users signups um ultimately sales now you are familiar with kind of these let's say serial creators that build in public And essentially, you know, if you follow some of them on Twitter, all of them kind of brag about the monthly recurring revenue they have and essentially how much they make every month. Um, Problem with the MRR metric is that it takes into account both small accounts and the larger organizations that pay for your tools. So you don't have like a realistic look at your month over month growth. So in my case, I prefer just looking at the month over month growth, but taking out the big accounts. So take out 
uh, anyone who's paying 10K or more a month and start looking at, you know, how many of these smaller, like cheaper plans or whatever you have, um, how many of these accounts are created every month and how that's scaling. So really having more of a realistic look at um, how your user base is growing. But this, you know, the MRR ultimately only gives you an idea of how you're doing overall. Uh, if you want to track certain channels, then, you know, there's just separate uh, tracking methods you can use for every single experiment. So, yeah, that's I think that's a really interesting tip and, and insightful for founders to sort of delete those big recurring accounts and keep track of those new signups. And I guess also from there, you, you definitely want to look at how many of those new signups are sticking around after a few months, because that's where you can really see your churn. Um, let's talk a little bit about messaging and market message fit. Uh, you mentioned uh, the likes aren't really that important. Uh, mentions are better because it shows that you're top of mind more. Uh, but for for us on uh, those of us who are working in uh, social media marketing, uh, what and, and other forms of content marketing, how do we figure out quickly if a new startup has sort of that market message fit? So, in the ideal case scenario, you can have. I'll give you an example. You are familiar with pitch, right? Is like slides creator, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, essentially they launched a bit over a year ago and they were in beta for like two years. So you had to request access to join and being in beta and having this like exclusivity around your product gives you, you know, a, an ideal timeline for actually testing your messaging. Now, when it comes to message testing, every person you talk to is kind of going to advise you differently in terms of when you should start testing your messaging. Tweaking the message as early as possible and as you go. And if you're in beta, you're going to start noticing that, you know, like in Pitch's case, there's just more interest in it, more people who want to sign up, even if the product is not yet available, you know, uh, to the mass market, so to say. And, um, really from there like if you start testing as early as possible when you have your official launch you will have you know a message you can safely lead, lead with however messaging is just continuously changing as you might know uh, whether you have a new feature launch or you're rebranding you're entering a new target market maybe you're just changing your company values or whatever you want to keep retesting this. And I spent roughly five years in this project management industry, which was, it, it's, you know, one of the most crowded SaaS categories, essentially. And really what, you know, besides competitors that were innovating from a tech point of view, like new features like Notion and Airtable, and then you had these uh, tools like Asana that had just a lot of, money for ads and sponsorships and whatever the rest of the medium and smaller players were essentially competing on messaging so you would have 
a project management tool essentially changing kind of their messaging every single month. Like one month you would be targeting remote companies, then you're just kind of uh, tweaking that messaging so that it helps your product helps companies. I mean, employees within those teams just um, work easier. And there's, you know, there's these small ways of tweaking your messaging so that it resonates with your audience. That really, when when you don't have the resources to just keep developing features forever, which is impossible, not scalable, because, you know, at some point, everyone's going to have the same features as you. So your only solution really is to just work with your messaging and, uh, you know, stop being that other tool that helps you do it all. Find something that your audience, so your target market essentially really resonates with. And um, I mean, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can talk to potential users. You can use Winter, by the way. You can really, there's a lot of opportunities to really just sit down and talk to your target market. And by the way, you can use this as part of your ABM play because you can reach out to these companies that are your ideal uh, customers and ask them for feedback, ask them for a contribution, anything really that would kind of start the the discussion. Super. Uh, I was reminded there when you were mentioning Pitch's long beta process, I was reminded of uh, one of the most uh, interesting and sort of, I guess, sad um, product launches from last year and hype cycles, I guess, which was Clubhouse uh, because they had this long, you know, iPhone only sort of invite only rollout that just built the hype cycle so much. And now nobody likes it anymore. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? What do you think they got wrong about their product or their go to market strategy? I mean, if you ask me, in their case, it's just the fact that they were basically trying to build another social network when we are already kind of caught up in, you know, running between these, between Twitter and LinkedIn. And just, I mean, today, Twitter already has the same functionality as Clubhouse did. So again, as as you see, their features were very easy to copy. And they didn't really have any, you know, messaging that stands out because it was essentially just another social network. And really, the the point with only having, uh, you know, people with iPhones tune in that does, you know, cut down your market quite a lot. But I think the biggest problem is really people don't want necessarily new tools as much as they want maybe the same feature on something they are already using. For sure. And definitely it makes sense for Twitter to have it. I, I, I think that Twitter spaces are enjoyable on occasion. Um, I never really got into Clubhouse just because the, the real-time nature of it, uh, I wasn't in the same like right time zone to get into the chats that were actually interesting to me. Uh, just because of my location in the world. So it it didn't have a lot of practicality for me. 
All right, where's where are we going next? Um, let's talk about prioritizing time and money uh, for for these different channels. So new startups have have basically there's four four different types of segments of marketing, right? Paid, earned, search, and organic. Uh, if you're an early stage founder, you have a really small team, it might just be you and another founder. Um, how do you prioritize time and money across those four segments? So I'm generally always a fan of organic marketing. So anything that's organic and earned is really what I believe works. However, yes, organic efforts generally can take more time. So that's why a lot of startup founders, I think, fall into this trap with ads where basically instead of having organic content on whatever topic you want to tackle, you would just kind of dump your money into ads. However, again, the problem is that basically what works in marketing is you know either you do things organically and you scale like through some unique campaigns that really create the buzz around your product or you need a lot of money to actually make those ads scale so for example four years ago or something monday.com had those youtube ads that everyone was getting i think they still have some of them and they're just like going crazy with them and they spent a lot of money we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars a month when with you know if you're a startup you can only afford maybe a hundred ish bucks a week a day it depends on these ads so you won't get that effect you want from the ads essentially so you can still turn to organic efforts while keeping in mind that it really doesn't cost much to do certain account-based marketing plays or certain partnerships or just you can even find influencers who would be happy to kind of test your product or just use it for free in return for that promotion. So if you ask me, you can do literally everything for free. However, I would definitely get that budget in just have a dedicated budget for large scale. Uh, maybe you need to go sponsor an event. Maybe you need to pay a bit for a certain partnership. Maybe you just want, for example, if, if it works for you, a newsletter sponsorship, anything that's really going to scale. And you know, if you see the ROI in that channel, it's definitely worth you know spending $200, $300 on that like one-time campaign, so to say, to actually start getting more users like today instead of just waiting for those organic efforts like SEO. Plus, even with content, you still need to pay your writers. So it depends because I, I know a lot of companies that grew with minimal marketing, so with minimal spend in traditional, so to say, marketing tactics. So that's also possible, but you do need to take the time to, again, grow your community and grow, make sure that you maintain the relationship with your users so that they will in turn become uh, lawyer promoters of your brand.
Right on. And that brings us into one of our last topics, which is one of the biggest buzzwords right now in marketing, community. So how, how do you make this jump from having an audience to having an active community around your startup? And I guess, can you define that a little bit for us? So what's the difference between newsletter readers and a community or Twitter followers and a community or podcast listeners and a community. So essentially, you know, when you have your podcast listeners and your newsletter subscribers and so on, they are part of your community. However, yes, the community does extend a bit more. Now, these days when I talk to founders who are interested in building a community, there's roughly two approaches. The first approach, which is the wrong one, is when they start their community strictly with the users they have. And then they try to scale that and bring in, let's say, outsiders, so people who aren't yet a user, into this community that's already for current users. So with this approach, what happens is that you've got maybe a Slack group where your current users kind of use it as an alternative to traditional customer support. So, you know, they ask for tips, they want you to fix their problems, they suggest features, whatever. The best approach, though, is to start with the idea of creating a community that's really for anyone who has the problems and the challenges you discuss, so not just for your users. Like, yes, your users can still have their dedicated place within your community where they can exchange, you know, ideas of using your tool. And you'll also need, you know, one of those boards where users can come in and upvote or downvote a feature they want from your tool. However, if you really want to position yourself as a leader in the field, so in your industry or just regarding certain matters that you often discuss, you need a community that's tied to that, where you have yourself, your employees, then you will also need to start bringing in some, let's say, community advocates, kind of your loyal community members who are always there to you know, answer questions, create more content. You can also organize events. Um, and this is essentially separate from anything else you're doing. But in a way, they all tie into your community. So you're going to have, for instance, your Slack group or whatever. You can make it in Mighty Network, Circle, whatever you want. And then you're going to have a newsletter. You can share that newsletter in this community as well. You can have a podcast. You can have events. You can uh, start a referral program that would just incentivize people to talk a bit more about the product and create really that community effect that you want, where people are just going to talk all over YouTube about your product, all over you know, podcasts and whatever else they can kind of monetize in this sense. That makes sense, yeah. And I like the aspect of focusing a community around I guess a niche or the problems that you solve rather than just your users. And I, I don't know, for us, um, a big challenge at Parallax because we want to build more of a, a global community of founders, B2B, 
because we are we are startup founder focused agency and a product studio. Um, but for now, what we have is sort of a lot of small communities within uh, Parallect. Um, so the engineers have their workshops, and and the product uh, managers have have product experiments sprints and they discuss that in their community um and and i have this podcast and we have other different uh sort of events going on also on linkedin we have one coming up but um i guess for me the challenge is not necessarily to orchestrate all of them and sort of try and control them all and bring them into one cohesive whole it's more of to to find content out of what's happening in each of those communities that we can share with with our larger audience so that people get a bigger picture of what, what we're all about. We also somehow have this problem where essentially our target market is distributed in different directions. Like you might have different ICPs in different industries, like you have developers in product and what else. So I don't think you need to bring all people in the community and kind of force them in there. But as you mentioned, you can have content and events and communities that cater to each one of them, essentially. So that's really kind of the secret, not forcing people to do, uh, you know, what they don't want to because they're just not going to engage. They're not going to come to your uh, group. So for sure. One last question for you. Uh, And this is uh, one that I'm curious about. Uh, and it refers, and it's about content marketing specifically. So, what do you think the future looks like for content marketing? Uh, probably you read it, uh, Ryan Law's article about the search singularity, uh, about these AI writing tools. Uh, what does what does the future of content look like in your eyes? Are we all just going to be feeding things into GPT three and and polishing them, or what do you think? So I'll tell you what, a week ago-ish, I actually tried all of these AI writing tools because I was like curious because, you know, a lot of people are saying that it does make writing easier and essentially all of them do the same thing because they rely on this like common API, API that does, you know, the basics. And really, that's pretty much what it does. It's It makes writing quicker. So for instance, if you're writing a section and you need a checklist or a bullet list with the benefits to whatever it will write that however what it does is it just pulls from the massive information that's already out there so ultimately you end up just kind of with content that's really you know like everyone else is so I, I don't I think we are still far from completely relying on AI to write our articles. Uh, if you ask me, when it comes just to the SERP, we have already reached that point where it's super tough to rank as you know a new startup, a new website with you know less than ten uh, points in domain authority, so to say, because it's really kind of these big brands that have, you know, taken over the SERP and they're just developing upon what they have targeting new keywords. So there's very few, especially in the B2B space, there's very few keywords that have a lower keyword difficulty. So what you really need to do at an early stage is create, start building these topic clusters. Like what are the terms 
that you want people to associate with your brand. In our case, it's messaging, positioning. For others, it's agile software development. Uh, in other cases, it's, I don't know, email marketing, whatever. So you can start creating those content around those topics. But ideally, you would want to focus a bit on thought leadership content. Problem with this is that sometimes, I mean, in most cases, it's not really going to rank well. So you need a solid distribution strategy for that. So, you know, what happens to a post after it's live? Where do you share it? Uh, who's promoting it? How often do you talk about it? And um, really, that's kind of the key to kind of sp spreading the word about your brand, creating more demand, and, you know, not falling victim to the way the SERP is right now. But before we all start using these AI tools, which again, if you ask me, I wouldn't necessarily recommend them. Before that, there's um, content optimization tools. And essentially what they do is they help you rank better. So if you've got outdated content or if you're just writing a new piece of content on a topic that's maybe not that competitive, uh, you know, these tools will recommend what keywords to use, uh, how to structure your article, which articles on your blog you need to update, things like that. However, this is still an SEO play. So really, I would just rely as much as possible on becoming a thought leader in this space. There's a lot of startups, just SaaS companies that didn't even have a blog in the first two years. And, you know, they made it, they're growing. They started their blog a bit later uh, than you would expect maybe. But it, even when I talk to just a lot of founded, startup founders, I don't always recommend just jumping into content straight away because you've got all of these, let's say relations to build, direct outreach, account-based marketing, as much as you can do it at an early stage, a lot of other you know, partnerships and whatever tactics that you need to focus on before you start dedicating your time you know, just on content. So that's pretty much the future of content, trying to stand out a bit more, but not necessarily in the SERP, do it via socials, via your community, and never think of content as a standalone thing. Always tie it to your community, to just other efforts that you have. Awesome. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I hope that all the founders that we work with and all the founders who are thinking about launching soon, coming into our accelerator, will find this very helpful and useful. I definitely learned a lot from it. And for everyone who has made it this far, please uh, follow Alexandra on LinkedIn, on uh, Twitter, find her newsletter, The Marketing Odyssey, where she shares very helpful tips for improving your marketing. All right. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>